You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. We are learning, uh, this new series is called Life's Greatest Lessons. Now, I think the, the, the most important lessons that we all learn are the ones we experience ourselves. For example, parenting. Any parents in the house? A lot of you. A lot of young people I see here. Um, so parents, remember the first time you became a parent? Uh, 14 years ago, uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child, Caden, and we did all the parenting classes, we read the books, um, we listened to the advice of all these other parents who've been there and done that, but when did we really start learning about parenting? It's the second one. <laughs> <laughs> it's when this boy came home. Uh, my b- little boy came home, and we suddenly realized that this tiny human being was going to teach us a lesson every single day, not just about parenting, but about patience, about responsibility, about teamwork, self-sacrifice, priorities, love, all those lessons you learn from becoming a parent. And then two years later, our second child came along, and I thought, we got this. I'm an expert at this parenting thing, right? And then this little girl comes into our lives. And the rules change when the girl comes, right? It's different with the second child, with the girl. And we have to learn new lessons each and every day. So um, just a quick aside, we visited Pastor Mike and Pastor Christina last Sunday. And they're brand new parents, obviously. And so, you know how I think all of us have been sharing our parenting advice to them for the last nine months. Um, But when I think about it, I'm like, you know what? The only way they're really going to learn is when they're doing it. When they took this baby Charlotte home and they're doing it right now, they're parenting. And when he comes back, I think he's coming back next week or in a couple weeks. You guys just go up to Pastor Mike, Pastor Christina, and just tell them, you got this. You're doing a great job. You'll learn, you know, you're going to see them make some mistakes, but they'll learn, right? Um, But baby Charlotte, she's in good hands, so I just want to report that. So we are um, doing this series called Life's Greatest Lessons, and I think when I look back at my 40 years of existence, I think, uh, what is the, the greatest lesson that I've learned? And it's really hard to pinpoint it, but I'm going to make it really simple. I realized that I really, 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 really need Jesus. And so do you. And then if I'm sitting there where you're at, I'd be like, really, Pastor, that's it? I need Jesus? Duh. Tell me something I don't know, right? Maybe someone in this room really does need Jesus. Maybe they're not saved. Maybe they're going through a crisis in their life. So this sermon is for them and not for me. No, it's not. This sermon applies to all of us. We all really, really need Jesus. We've been singing that all morning. But sometimes we come to church, right? Who's been in church all their life? Like from the day they were born, they grew up in a Christian home or a religious home, and they've been to church all their life. Anybody here? Come on, more of you. Yeah? Okay. I've been in church all my life. I've been in Pastor Thel's church pretty much all my life, right? Um, and we grew up with this um, saying, Christianity is not a religion, it is a 
Relationship, right? But what kind of relationship is it? What kind of relationship is it? Because you see, we can end up being religious in our relationship with Jesus. We can end up treating church and Christianity as just a bunch of rituals and patterns that we go through week after week. And I didn't grow up in another religion. I didn't grow up in another tradition. I grew up in new life. But even growing up in new life all these years, there's been points where I come to church and I do the Christian thing and I live my life throughout the week as a Christian in my Christian bubble, make sure I don't mess up, make sure I'm moral, make sure I don't, you know, displease my parents. And then I come back to church on Sunday and I'm fine. Everything's good. I do the same thing over and over again. And so I've learned through the years to put on the best Christian face, to talk the Christian talk, to say the Christian sayings, to pray, the, pray like a Christian, dress like a Christian, blend in like a Christian. And so I could easily live this Christian life without really understanding my need for Jesus. I could preach an hour to you telling you, you need Jesus, but if I don't realize that I need Jesus for myself. It's for nothing. And we don't just need Jesus when we're going through trials, when we're going through crisis. We need Jesus when everything is normal, when everything is fine. So would you just turn to three people right now and tell them, you really, really need Jesus, and so do I. All right. Let me pray for us quickly. You could join me in this prayer. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Jesus, we really need you today. Even if we came in this morning thinking everything was okay, help us to always recognize our need for you. So teach us by your word. Teach us your truth. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to be in the book of Mark. Um, during the event of Jesus' life right before he died, the week before he died. A week before Easter, on Palm Sunday, Scripture tells us Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He rides into town, and people received him with shouts of praise and honor. They welcomed Jesus as a conquering hero. They heard of his miracles they knew of his power, and they expected Jesus uh, to overthrow the, the power of Rome, to usher in a new kingdom with his military might. The people, they, they removed their jackets, they grabbed some palm leaves, they threw it on the ground, and they cried out in Mark 11, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That word Hosanna means save. It was an exclamation of praise. There was an excitement in the air. It was like a parade for an important dignitary or a famous celebrity. Pastor Ken mentioned the NBA Finals. In 2010, the Lakers won their last NBA championship. That was a long time ago, folks. Too long. 
But I was there at the parade in downtown Los Angeles, waiting to see a glimpse of Kobe Bryant and the Lakers championship team. And all these people were cheering, they were waving their flags of purple and gold, and the environment was one of victory and celebration. Oh, if only one day we can experience that again soon here in Los Angeles. Amen? Amen. Come on, Laker fans. Amen? Amen. Okay, nobody's here. You guys converted to the Golden State War? Come on. Come on, Pastor Ken. Where are we at right now? What happened here? Okay. So Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. People were cheering him on. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Five days later, on Good Friday, these same people in the crowd that were yelling, Hosanna, save us, were now yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Even Jesus' closest followers, those who knew him intimately, his own disciples, they betrayed him, they denied him, they deserted him. Isn't it crazy how on Sunday morning we could be so hyped up for Jesus? We could be praising him passionately. We could be worshiping him so wholeheartedly. But then by Friday, we're doing things and saying things that are so opposite from what a Christ follower ought to do and say. Within days, it's as if we've turned our back on Jesus and we're acting according to our own will. And our own selfish desires. And when we do mess up, guess what happens? We make sure by Sunday, we're back at church, we got our Christian clothes on, and we're, think, we're, we're saying and acting in the right way. We're making people just look at us and say, wow, he's doing all right. Yeah? Is that just me? I mean, I'm a pastor here. So every Sunday, I have to come looking and dressing and acting like a pastor. But that was me my whole life. You put on this Christian facade. You don't, re- you don't need to respond to the message when, when the pastor says, you need Jesus. I'm like, I already got Jesus. I have a relationship with Jesus. I'm good. But how many times do we come to church and, and we realize our brokenness and we say, Lord, save me. Save me. Help me. I need you. Because shame on you if people find out something's wrong with your life. You're supposed to be this strong Christian, right? But the fact of the matter is we're all on this journey of faith in Jesus. And sometimes we're going to fail. And sometimes we are going to fall. And it's okay to be honest and say, Lord, I messed up this week. And I need you. I need you today. I need your Holy Spirit to get me back on track. Because I'm tired of pretending. I'm tired of putting my own righteousness on, tired of doing the Christian thing my own way, I need to do it your way. I need to be real with you, Jesus. And so that's my prayer for all of us here, for myself included, that we would recognize that Christianity is not about making ourselves righteous, but allowing ourselves to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's our theme for the morning. And I want to take a unique approach to this topic. 
We're going to explore the Gospel of Mark. And I want to show you a clothing motif. Say clothing motif. Now, a motif is a pattern. It's found in Mark's Gospel. Now, it's, and, it, and it involves clothes. How many of you are fashionistas? How many of you are trendy? Point at someone who's the trendiest person here. You love shopping for clothes. Anyone here love shopping for clothes? Be real. Anybody? Yeah? Okay. So um, I was going to wear a suit, full-on suit today. Uh, the other day, if you were watching the NBA Finals, you saw LeBron James come into the, 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 the stadium. He's wearing this suit, and he, it had short, he had shorts on. It was suit shorts, right? And I'm like, wow, it's hot. I would wear that, right? But everyone just totally blasted him on social media. Yesterday, I was reading the article that that suit costs more than a luxury vehicle. And I was like, okay, he can get away with that. He's got the funds, right? Now, I have a confession. I like shopping, too. If you look at me and my wife, you, if, you, if you asked either of us which, who, would, who would be uh, more likely to go shopping, and that would be me. But you're not going to find me at the mall. You're going to find me at the clearance rack at Kohl's <laughs> with a 30% off coupon making sure I could get the most bang for my buck, right? And so this clothing motif is very interesting to me that we, in, in the book of Mark. What does Mark have to say about being clothed in Christ? You guys want to do a little Bible discovery this morning? Want to put a puzzle together with me this morning? I invite you to turn to Mark 14, 51 to 52. Mark 14, 51 to 52. It says, A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Amen. Now, I can't remember in my 40 years of going to church any sermon or Bible study or Sunday school lesson about this particular verse. It's one of the most puzzling passages in all of Scripture. It seems kind of silly. And for centuries, Bible students have tried to figure out the identity of this person, this mysterious, young, streaking fugitive. <laughs> Why in the world would Mark take the time to mention this dude? Who's this man? Well, in the Greek, the word used to describe him is the word neoniskos. Say neoniskos. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But it just means a young man. Any young man in the house. One guy back there is young. So why was this young man only wearing a linen garment with nothing underneath it? It's like someone who was taking a shower, there was an emergency, maybe the house was burning down, and so all he could do is run out of the house in his bathrobe. But who is this mystery man, right? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. He is unidentified, but tradition tells us that this is the, actually the gospel writer himself, John Mark. It's just a theory, but the theory behind this identification of this man as Mark 
is that the upper room where Jesus and his disciples held their last supper, this upper room was in the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Now, if Mark is living there in this home when Jesus and his disciples had their last supper, he might have followed those disciples and Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. And in his haste, Maybe Mark was wearing only a linen sheet. He kind of just snuck out of the house in his pajamas. And then when the temple guards arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when all the disciples fled and ran away, there was Mark. He was also trying to run away, but the guards nabbed him. They grabbed him. He got caught. So he wiggles out of this garment, and he flees the scene naked. That's a theory It's a speculation. The Bible doesn't tell us who this man is, but why would this gospel writer Mark put himself in the story in such a humiliating um, place there? I mean, if you were humiliated, if you were embarrassed, would you Instagram it? You might Snapchat it, right? Like your friends would know, but then no one else in the world should know how embarrassed you were. But Mark, if this is Mark and he writes it, all the whole world is going to know what happened to this young man. He loses his clothes and he runs away naked. What's the big deal here? Stay with me. There's a clue in Mark chapter 16 that connects us to this young man. Mark 16, the women, three women visit Jesus' tomb on Easter Sunday morning. And the large stone that covered the tomb is rolled away. And Mark 16 tells us as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man. That same word, neoniscos. He was dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See where they laid him. Notice the phrase used to describe this person. In all the other Gospels, who is there at the empty tomb? An angel. An angel. Mark does not use the word angel to describe this person at the tomb. He uses the same word, neoniscos, young man dressed in a white robe. Now, was it an angel? Probably, most likely it was. But there's a reason Mark used this phrase, young man. Perhaps he's connecting it to the young man who fled naked. In the previous scene, this young man is naked. In this scene, the young man is dressed in a white robe. Is there a significance to the white robe? So I did did more research, and I found that in Mark 9... When Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, it says after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Jesus' clothes were dazzling white. A little more investigation Go back to the young man in Mark 14. What was he doing? This young man was following Jesus. Now the word used for following in the Greek 
has to do with this close companionship. He was not just a casual observer. He wasn't just a little ways behind following Jesus. He was closely following Jesus. Mark uses this strong word for following. And I think he's using this word to show that this young man represents anyone who calls themselves a close disciple of Jesus. He's not just a fringe onlooker. He's not just a curious bystander. He's a young follower of Jesus. Any young followers of Jesus in the room? My goodness. Amen. Youth, where are you at? Smile. Okay, if there's a young person sitting next to you, like high five them right now. Get them, get them to wake. Yeah. Young followers of Jesus, are you in the room? All right. I'm going to tell Mike to uh, give you some pizza or something. All right. Fast forward, right, <laughs> to Jesus' death. Oh, sorry. Here you go. What's the man wearing in this uh, first scene, this young man? He's wearing a linen cloth. He's wearing nothing but linen. Where else does that, those clothes, do those clothes show up in the Gospel of Mark? Mark 15. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he, or Jesus, was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. So when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph of Arimathea, he bought some linen cloth, took down the body of Jesus, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone at the entrance of the tomb. What kind of clothes were Jesus buried in? Was Jesus buried in? Linen. Linen cloth. It's the same word used to describe what that young man was wearing. And it's only used twice in the Gospel of Mark. What's the connection between what Jesus is wearing and what the young man was wearing? Are you with me so far? This is kind of like playing Sherlock Holmes. We're investigating a mystery, a mystery here, right? One last clue. The young man fled naked, leaving his garment behind. In order to get a better picture of this man fleeing in shame, we got to recognize that all of Jesus' other disciples fled the scene. The verse before it says, Then everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone deserted Jesus. Everyone ran away. Every disciple, including Peter, James, and John, ran away when things got tough. And so this young man who fled away naked represents all of the disciples who shamefully abandoned their Savior, their Lord. You guys know Judas, right? You think of him as the worst of all the disciples because he betrayed Jesus. No one wants to be like Jesus, Judas. No one wants to name their kid Judas. I hope no one here is named Judas. Anyone? No? 
But the fact of the matter is that all of Jesus' followers at one point deserted him. They failed him. All of them acted in shameful and dishonoring ways. Disciples became deserters. Followers became failures. All were shamefully exposed. But listen, friends, there's hope. There is hope for Christ's followers who have failed Jesus at one time or another. There's hope. Because even if you were born in church, born and raised in the church like me, even if you've never messed up, if you don't have a testimony like, oh, I was in jail or I was on drugs or, you know, I don't have that testimony. I have a testimony that I was raised in a Christian church, in a Christian home, in a fairly safe and stable environment. And yet, I failed Jesus many, many times because I lived my life thinking I didn't really need him. I was fine just being a Christian, just going to church on Sunday. But listen, there's hope for me as well. And there's hope for you who have been following Jesus, who at one time, time and time again, sometimes we fail and sometimes we let him down. I'm going to piece this puzzle together. Mark is highlighting the failure of the disciples in order to juxtapose, in order to contrast the effect of Christ's work on the cross and what that work accomplished for his followers. I want you to notice the great exchange. Tell each other the great exchange. There's a visual picture of an exchange of garments that signifies the redemptive work of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You see, Mark's young man, this this young man who flees the scene naked, in disgrace, he represents followers of Jesus who fail, those who abandon Jesus throughout the week and forget that they need him. Those who leave everything behind and they follow their own ways. Mark's young man leaves behind his own garments. And this act of abandonment is so shameful, so disgraceful, so sinful. And that linen cloth that is left behind represents, it's a symbol of his failure and his shame. But where is that linen garment transferred? Where does it go? Who does it go to? It goes to Jesus. Let me map it out this way. This young disciple wears linen. He loses the linen garment and becomes naked. He is stripped of his dignity. He is full of shame. And then we have Jesus who is stripped of his dignity He suffers a shameful death on the cross and he is clothed in the same type of linen cloth as those he died for. But not only that, it goes the other way as well. At the transfiguration, Jesus in that glorious moment on the mountaintop, his clothes became dazzling white. And then after Jesus dies and after Jesus rises again, When the women visit the empty tomb, who is there to greet him? A young man who is dressed 
in white, a white robe. The garments of the young man and the garments of Jesus have been exchanged. The young, the young man's garment of shame buried Jesus. Jesus' garment of glory restores the young man. It's a brilliant depiction of what Jesus did and what he continues to do for his followers. He bears our sin and our shame. He covers us with his glorious garments to remove our shame. And I have to remember that every day. Just because I'm a Christian and go to church doesn't mean I am righteous in my own ways. I need Jesus. In Christ, we are justified by faith. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans and Galatians, and we can do a whole study on that topic. But when we look through the eyes of Mark, it illustrates for us this exchange of clothing. To be justified means just as if we did not sin. We're justified in Jesus Christ. That means when we come to faith in Christ, God has declared us to be righteous in his sight as if we had not sinned. And how is that? How can God look at you and me just as if we did not sin? How can he declare us righteous? Whose righteousness is it? The Bible says it's not our own righteousness that justifies us. It is Christ's righteousness that justifies us. But how is Christ's righteousness applied to us? Paul tells us clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin or a sin offering for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We call this the double imputation. It's a theological term. Say double imputation. And so I want to illustrate that with the jacket that I have on right now. I didn't want to wear a jacket today. It's too hot. But this dark jacket represents my sins, past, present, and future. Before I came to Christ, even if I grew up in the church, before I came to Christ, before embracing his saving work on the cross of Calvary, God looks at me and what does he see? He sees sin. No matter how good I try to be on my own, no matter how many uh, times I serve in church, how righteous and holy I try to be on my own, I am still guilty of sin. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us all of us here become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sin sweeps us away. We're sinful because of Adam and Eve. Their sin was passed down from generation to generation and all through the years people had to sacrifice to atone for their sins. They had to bring an animal to the temple and offer their sacrifice to be forgiven. But as soon as they left their sacrifice, the process would start over and over again. They would become sinful, and then they would have to become, they would have to seek atonement. 
But Jesus came for us to be the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. And it is through his cross that we can receive not only forgiveness, but also righteousness. Check this out. I come to the cross. There's Jesus. Perfect, holy, never sinned in his life. And my sin gets laid on the cross. And he bears all my sins. Not just my sins, but your sins. And the sins of everyone throughout all of history are laid on him. So Jesus takes our sin. But am I righteous? He's forgiven me. But what does God still see? My own righteousness, which is not enough. So my sins are imputed, the double imputation, they're imputed to Christ on the cross. And because of his death, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But just because I am now free from the penalty of sin, which is death, just because I'm forgiven doesn't mean I am righteous. I'm just morally neutral right now. But see, being justified in Christ also means that Christ has imputed his righteousness to us. Does this illustrate it fairly well, right? Isaiah 61 verse 10 tells us, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Praise the Lord. This is the double imputation, my sins in exchange for Christ's righteousness. The great exchange, a lesson we need to learn each and every day, that we are not righteous by our own efforts. We are righteous because Christ has imputed on us his righteousness. Friends, Jesus did this for you and for me. Every time we come to church, we celebrate the fact that Christ's righteousness has been given to us. Our sins are on the cross. He paid for it, and he gave us his righteousness. Even when Christ went through Holy Week from Sunday to Friday, as people celebrated him when he came into Jerusalem, as people cheered him on, And then when they betrayed him on Friday, you know what he did? He died for them anyway. He made the final and ultimate atonement, the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. And so today, when we come to the cross in our shame, in our sickness, in our nakedness, in our nastiness, 
in our self-righteousness, we can exchange our sins for his righteousness. Can I get an amen? Amen. Hosanna, Hosanna, Lord save us. I need salvation. We all need salvation. Now salvation, I've, I've taught this before, it, it happens in three tenses. In the past, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's justification. When we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are no longer under the penalty of sin. In the present, each and every day, we wake up and we say, Lord, I need you. That's sanctification. We are being saved from the power of sin. And in the future, when Christ shall come, we will be saved from the presence of sin. What we learn today is justification. Our sins in exchange for Christ's righteousness. So now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our righteousness. He sees Christ's righteousness. And he declares us not guilty. Do you receive that verdict today, not guilty? Not guilty. Would you tell someone, you're not guilty if you're clothed in Jesus Christ? Would you stand with me today? I just want to lead us in a prayer of consecration, and for those of you who do not know Jesus, I hope this painted a picture for you of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I invite you today to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. I don't care how many sins you've committed before today. All of those sins can be laid on the cross, which Jesus died and paid for all our sins, and we can receive today his perfect righteousness. And each and every day, he can help us become more like him. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's table this morning. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. It's on this cross that you paid the penalty for our sins, past, present, and future. It's on the cross that you bore our guilt and our shame. It's on the cross you suffered on our behalf. And it's also on that cross that you gave to us your righteousness so that we could be reconciled with a holy God. This morning, we thank you for the cross. As we experience communion today, may we recognize the powerful work of salvation May we experience your forgiveness and your grace and your presence and your righteousness today. Save those who need to be saved today. If that's you, you just pray this prayer. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. I come to you today and ask that you become my Savior and my Lord. I want to follow you. I want to follow you. I want to receive your righteousness this morning. And I want to walk, not in my own righteousness, but in yours. For all of us who've been in church for a long, long time, and we've settled for our own kind of cruise control Christianity, help us to stand firm in our faith 
Help us to each and every day depend on the saving work of Jesus Christ, knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we celebrate the resurrected Lord who paid the price for our sins and showers us with his righteousness. We love you, Lord, and we offer you praise name and everybody said amen thank you for listening to audio from new life foursquare located in harbor city and norwalk california feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others but please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission for more information you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org